Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. I love Easter. I love the busyness of it. I love seeing so many people here and uh, all the excitement. Probably my favorite thing, however, about the day is it is a ready-made excuse to wear the most obnoxious clothing you can find. My son and I, uh, he's all about, his baseball team is pink, and so we went to the store last night, and he wanted me to pick out a pink shirt to wear this morning to match the pink shirt he's wearing, and so we did it. It was kind of bright. Uh, And this morning as I was looking at it in the closet and thinking, there's just no way. I will catch grief. It'll be terrible. He he, He comes to me and says, listen, Dad, you need to wear the shirt because it'll help people listen to you better this morning. So if this makes no sense to you, it's my fault. I wore a blue shirt instead of a pink shirt. But it is good to see so many of you and, and, uh, and so many of you looking so bright and cheery. Uh, it is a day for great cause for celebration, so we are grateful for your being here. We've been in a series in the book of Hebrews all spring, and we're going to continue this morning, except we're going to skip to the very end and read just two verses, which are a benediction that the writer of this letter gives to the people that he's writing the letter to. So if you want to follow along with me, you can. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me, and it also you can open a Bible there in front of you in the pew if you'd like. Hebrews chapter 13, just verses 20 and 21. That's all we're going to read. And then talk together this morning for a few minutes. <clears throat> so follow with me. Uh, this great benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Three things from this text that I want us to look at this morning. First, it shows us that we have a problem. We have a really big problem. Secondly, not only does it diagnose for us the problem, but it, it, it reveals to us the solution to the problem. And the solution to the problem is what we celebrate today, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And then thirdly, I want to ask, after we see the problem and the solution to the problem, thirdly, what happens, what does it look like, what begins to happen in your life if the, the powerful truth and reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead come into your life? What begins to happen? Those are the three things that we're going to look at from this passage, beginning just with this, first, the problem. What's the problem uh, that this passage helps us diagnose about our lives? And it's right there in verse 20 in the word equip. You see that. The word means to repair or to adjust or to restore. And the classic illustration would be the 15-year-old kid who finds an old junker at the junkyard and gets his dad uh, talked into restoring it with him so that he can drive it when he's 16 years old. And so what do they have to do? They have to put the engine back together. They have to go to the junkyard and find all the right parts so that everything works the way it's supposed to. They have to mend the upholstery and buff the scratches and bang out the dents and put a new paint job on the old beat-up thing uh, that has been, before this time, propped up on cinder, cinder blocks, much to mom's dismay, in the front yard. And yet, after months and months of tireless work... All of a sudden, it looks like this brand new thing. Now, when the Hebrews writer prays that God would equip us with every good work, every good thing, right, that we might do his will, he means that we, like the old car, are broken down and we need to be put back together again. I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's really a charming movie um, directed by Martin, Martin Scorsese, the movie Hugo, which came out around Christmas time. 
And it, it's, a, it's a great story. It's a story of an orphan boy who lives alone in the walls of a train station in Paris and keeps the clocks running so that nobody figures out that he's all by himself in there. But it really is a story of his relationship to an old man who, played by Ben, ben Kingsley, who is grumpy and sad. And as the movie unfold, unfolds, it becomes apparent that the reason this man is so sad is because he suffered an incredible loss at some point in his life and he's never recovered from it. There was a time when he was doing what he loved to do the most. He was doing the thing he was created for. And he was full of joy and purpose. But then it was taken away from him, and as a result, he fell apart. He lost his joy. He, he lost his sense of purpose. He was broken. And the boy Hugo has a particular knack for fixing things that are broken, clocks and machines and such. He really can't help himself if he sees something or project that needs to be worked on or something that's broken, he, he almost compulsively has to fix it. And so when he meets this old man who's so obviously broken, he becomes his friend, and through kindness he tries to fix him. And here are his words. Hugo Cabret, at one point in the story, it really fascinated me. He put it this way. He, he says, everything has a purpose, even machines. Clocks tell time. Trains take you places. They do what they're meant to do. And maybe that's why broken machines make me so sad. They can't do what they're meant to do. And maybe it's the same with people. If you lose your purpose, it's like you're broken. And it really is the theme that the movie begins to explore, that many of us are lost. We're broken and our lives don't work because we've lost our purpose. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us, that we are under a curse, is the way the Bible puts it, that life just doesn't work. Children are born with extra chromosomes. The, 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 you know, the ground produces thorns and thistles and not fruit and grass like I wish it would in my front yard. Right? Nothing about, you know, everything about our lives seems to be butted up against something. There's a curse that we're under. But where the Bible differs from Hollywood is in its explanation of why things are the way they are. Because, you see, my natural inclination and what I'm being trained to think in this culture is to think of myself, first of all, as a victim. When I butt up against the curse I'm describing, you know, when things get hard, when when things just don't go the way they're supposed to do, when, when life just begins to fall apart, my first instinct and what the culture's training me towards is to think of myself as a victim. And when I think of myself as a victim... Then I'm, and when I'm confronted with a problem, I typically try to resolve that problem through blame shifting. So when I'm confronted with a problem, for example, something I don't like about myself or my character, then I say to myself, my father's here, no offense, my grandparents are too, but I could say, you know, well, it's my parents' fault, you know. If only they parented me better. I wouldn't be lazy and my wife yell at me all the time or whatever it might be, right? Or if it's an argument with Ashley, then I'll think to myself, literally, I mean, literally, why does she have to be that way? You know, if only she was different. I mean, you see, it never crosses my mind that the problem might be me. I mean, the grass in my side yards become weeds. And you, I've been working in the yard this week, you can tell, because everything kind of goes back to the work in the yard. The grass in my side yards become weeds because my neighbor's side yard was weeds and mine was grass. But weeds grow better than grass, and so it looks terrible, but it's not my fault. I mean, it's obviously because, not because I've been lazy, right? My, my neighbor is the problem. 
See, it's becoming harder and harder to have enough money at the end of the month to pay the bills. But of course, it's not because I have a habit of overspending. It's President Obama's fault because gas prices are so high. You see, we do this. We all, we all do this all the time. Your child gets in trouble at school repeatedly, and the knee-jerk reaction is it's the teacher's fault because it couldn't possibly be your little angel that is the problem. All the teachers say, amen, brother. You see, we are being trained, we are, and this is a real problem. We are being trained to see ourselves as victims and then to blame shift. Now, let me give you a funny example of this. I don't know if you remember the old, and it's okay, it's Presbyterian Church, so I can reference a Budweiser commercial. Um, there are old, this old series of Budweiser commercials uh, where the lead character in the commercials was Leon, a professional athlete. Does anybody remember these commercials? And in one particular commercial, the inter- Leon, the star athlete, is being interviewed after the football game, and the interviewer says, Leon, your reactions following today's devastating loss. Quote, Leon's response, football is a team sport, man. So uh, i got to put the loss squarely on the shoulders of my supporting cast. <laughs> Look, man, I've been carrying these guys the whole season, but I can't do it all. I need some help. To which the interviewer asks, so, your four fumbles weren't a factor in, in today's game in your mind. Leon answers, not if one of those other guys would have jumped on the ball. <laughs> Again, Leon can't do everything. And then it breaks away and comes back, and the interviewer kind of smugly says, well, there's no I in team. To which Leon responds, well, there ain't no we either. (laughs) Right? You see? Now, that's funny. It's funny. But that's Genesis 1. Adam sins, and God comes to Adam. Adam, what have you done, and what does Adam do? The woman you gave me. Hmm, convenient. Boy, that's still being played out today in a lot of different places, isn't it? So God turns to the woman. What have you done? Well, the serpent tricked me. See, see, the problem is, is our lives don't work. But part of the problem is, is that we can't admit the truth that the problem is not out there. The problem is this. It's me. And what these verses and the rest of the Bible teach us is that in order... For your broken life to get put back together again, you have to stop seeing yourself as a victim and start seeing yourself as a violator. The problem is not out there. Sometimes it is. But in nearly every instance, it's not just out there. It's always, there's always a function of the problem being in here too. Now, contrast Leon's response to G.K. Chesterton, who was a, a, a Christian author at the turn of the 20th century. The... London Times ran an editorial asking its readership to respond to the question, what's wrong with the world today? And, of course, the political conservatives wrote in and blamed the, you know, the liberals, and the political liberals wrote in and blamed the conservatives, and people who thought education was the solution wrote in and talked about how we needed to do a better job of education. G.K. Chesterton wrote an editorial in the newspaper, and it was one line, and here was his response to the question, what's wrong with the world today? Dear sirs... I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. You see, the movie Hugo is getting at something very important. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God made us. He invented us as a man invents a machine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. God designed a human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. 
or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. Now, what's he saying? Say, C.S. Lewis agrees with Hugo Cabret that people are like machines. And if we lose our purpose, we break down. And our purpose from the beginning of creation was that we would live in humble, obedient submission to God who created us. There's a design that we cannot ignore, that we were made to run on God. He is the fuel our lives need to work properly. And so C.S. Lewis goes on to say that the commands of God are like rules for running the human machine and preventing a breakdown. There's a design. We've been created the way a man creates an engine, and when we ignore the design, it produces breakdown, and that's what's happened. That's exactly what's going on in our lives. We have violated God's design because of our sin and our rebellion. Instead of obeying him, instead of delighting to do his will, we insist continually to do things our own way. We've put ourselves in his place, and this is the cause for the curse, according to the Bible. This is why life doesn't work. This is why there's so much pain and sadness in the world, because there's a design. And when we ignore and when we violate the design, the result is destruction. There's a design in marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Who who made marriage, by the way? God did. And if he made it, do you think he knows how it works? And yet, even though there's a design, when we ignore, when we violate, when husbands violate the design of husbanding their wives... When wives violate the design of being a wife and submitting to their husbands, there's breakdown. You're created in the image of God, which means God is a community of persons, and therefore you were created to live your life in intimate community with other people. And when you ignore and and when you violate the design of how God made you in his image as a community of persons in sacrificial, loving relationship to one another, when you try to go at it on your own, when you don't, Pay attention to the reality of the design that God has for your life. Breakdown. Over and over again, the scripture warns about the danger of wealth and riches. In other words, riches come into the human heart and just cause all kinds of destruction. But when we ignore, when we violate how God has told us to live by giving us his commandments, what happens? Breakdown. See, we are violators. That's what's wrong with our lives. Not that we're victims, we're violators. And when the Hebrews writer says that in remaking us, God equips us with every good thing, that we may do his will there, he means that apart from that work, naturally in ourselves, we are filled not with good, but with evil. Man is not good by nature. That's not a part of the Christian worldview. And it's really not a part of our experience. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that's, you know... I want you to see that. that there, what I'm trying to get across to you is that there is something wrong in you and in all of us that goes so deep and is so pervasive that despite all our good intentions, we can't change. We have a problem that we can't fix. Sin is like an addiction. I keep eating food I know is bad for me, and I keep eating too much of it, and yet I can't stop myself. Is it? I guess I'm alone in that. Sin is just like an addiction. You can't stop doing it. There's a power. It just keeps you in the cycle, and so you need help from the outside. So let me ask, do you know? Do you know that you're broken and powerless to fix your life because the problem's not out there, the problem's in here? 
And if the problem is in here, then do you know that you are powerless to fix it? Do you feel the desperation of that? Because if you don't, then the rest of this sermon and the rest of today won't be cause for celebration for you. You'll just go through the motions. But if through a work of God's grace in your heart, you really see yourself not as a victim, but as a violator and powerless to change yourself, then I have good news for you today. Because there's a hero that can save you. You see, that's what today's all about. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, said that the power and all all the stories that we love, he called them fairy stories or fairy tales, is the dramatic tension that is created by the tragedy. In other words, there's some sort of conflict, there's some obstacle, there's some enemy that must be defeated. And yet, despite... The tragedy, what happens is is that the story unfolds and out of the tragedy comes the happy ending. There's this improbable victory that happens, right? That at the moment, um, at, at the darkest moment when all hope seems lost, something happens and victory is wrested from tragedy and good overcomes evil. He says that's what we love about stories. He says if you, if you look closely enough at all these stories, you'll see there's this turn of events that leads to the happily ever after. That is the moment that when you think back on a movie is the moment you remember is the most powerful moment in the movie. This turn of event that in the darkest moment leads to the happily ever after. So for example, in The Lord of the Rings, it's the trumpets of Rohan sounding across the Pelennor fields, right? Just as Minas Tirith is breached and all seems lost. Or in Beauty and the Beast, it's the moment in the, in the movie where Belle declares her love as Beast takes his last breath and there's this moment of sadness and then the magic begins to fall from the sky and Beast is resurrected and the castle uh, and all of the servants are transformed and a whole new world, world is born. Wow, that sounds familiar. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's Aslan standing there, not dead, but alive. In Harry Potter, it is the moment when Voldemort has broken through into Hogwarts and he hurls the death curse at Harry and Harry doesn't die. And Tolkien was a Christian, see, and he said, he went on to say that the gospel of Jesus has all the elements of a fairy story. In fact, it is the greatest of all the fairy stories because it's history and it's true. And just like all the other stories, there's a turn. See, that turn is there. The victory snatched out of the clutches of defeat. And the turn in the story of human history is the coming of Christ into the world as our Savior. And the turn in the story of Jesus' life and ministry is the morning the women went to the tomb and did not find him there. Because you see, Jesus' death signaled the end of all of the hopes about who he was and what he was going to do. It felt to his disciples like defeat, but that was Friday. See, Sunday came, and with Sunday came the improbable victory, the happily ever after. So the solution to our brokenness that this passage tells us is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 20 and 21. This is the argument he's making. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ equip you. In other words, because God raised Jesus from the dead, he can equip you with every good thing. That's the argument he's making. And so the doctrine is just this. The doctrine is that the resurrection is a historical fact to be believed and it is a spiritual reality we have to connect with. It's a doctrine, a historical fact that we are to believe, 
but it is also a spiritual reality that we experience and connect with. Now, let me just go through each of those with you for just a minute, and then we'll kind of wrap up at the end of that, okay? Again, if you're not a Christian, okay? We believe the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a historical fact. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. 1 Corinthians 15 says that there were more than 500 witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, so we take it as a historical event. And if it is a historical event, then everything else that Jesus said and did was true also. So C.S. Lewis says again, I, I hate to keep quoting him, but it's kind of hard to not to because he's so good. He says, either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. So what it means to believe in the resurrection is that you give it the weight that it deserves. You live like it's true. If Jesus really was raised from the dead, then you can't ignore him. You can't be lukewarm about him. You can't yawn at him. If Jesus really was raised from the dead, then he really is who he said he is. And therefore, your options are limited. You can either deny him and deny his claims, or you can fall down on your face before him and worship him and give him everything. Those are the only two options. Right? And my assumption is, is that there are a lot of people here this morning, a lot of us who claim to be Christians, but even though we claim to be Christians, our lives are still disconnected from the the historical reality of his resurrection. We don't take our cues from his resurrection. So what it means to be a Christian is you look at the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf, and you say, that... That event is what is informing the rest of my life. It's what's informing my emotional reality as I go throughout my life. So how do you deal with discouragement? I mean, how do, you know, in other words, I, in my discouragement and my despair, I remember the reality of whatever the valley of, of, of you know, pain I'm in at the moment, it's not the end of the story. Right? There's a resurrection. I mean, okay, in the middle of suffering and love for other people, so moms, in the middle of just feeling like you're just dying on a daily basis because it's what your kids demand and require of you. It's what loving them, you know, requires. How do you, in other words, all of the Christian life is a moving out in a dying love for the sake of other people. Well, how in the world do you become a person who can love like that? Second Corinthians 4 says, the way you find the energy to move out into a Dying love for the sake of other people is because you know on the other side of your death, there's a resurrection that God promises. Right? But then death itself. I mean, what about death itself? We, you know, Hebrews has talked a lot about the, the slavery that comes from the fear of death. So how do you deal with the reality of death and how do you die well? Christians should die well. Why? Because that's not the end. Death is the doorway to life that is truly life. You see, so what it means to be a Christian is you anchor your soul, you anchor your emotional reality, you anchor yourself despite the circumstances you find yourself in, in these historical realities of who Jesus was and what he came to do. But here's the thing. The resurrection is not just a historical fact to be believed. It is also a spiritual reality to connect with. And so you see, a person who is genuinely a Christian builds their life on the objective truth of the resurrection, but they also enter into it and experience it subjectively. And here's what I mean. In Romans 6, Paul says it this way. The Apostle Paul, he says, We were therefore buried with Christ into his death through baptism, 
in order that we might be raised from the dead with him to walk in newness of life. And so to believe in Jesus means more than you just give assent to the fact that he was God and he died for your sins and he was raised from the dead. I mean, it's so much more than just saying, yep, I, you know, I believe all of that. To believe in Jesus means you're brought into these spiritual realities and you experience them subjectively. When he died, you died with him. When he was raised, you were raised up with him. That's what it means to be a Christian, that God the Father breathed life into Jesus' deadness in the tomb. And if you're a Christian, then he comes to you and he breathes life into your spiritual deadness too. Okay, get ready for this, okay? Because Jesus was raised from the dead, when we die, we will be raised with him. Amen. That's the promise of the resurrection. But the Bible says even more than that. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, what's happened to you subjectively is right now, you've already experienced a resurrection. You've been raised, Paul says. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places right now. Present spiritual reality. Does that blow your mind? I mean, isn't that wonderful? But what does it mean? Because it sounds like a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo, if we're honest. I mean, what, what practically happens in your life when through faith you're united to Jesus and raised with him? See, that's the last thing I've got to deal with. And then we're done this morning. In Romans 6, Paul spells it out pretty clearly. He says, that the consequence is a new life. We are raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. We are made new. We are put back together, in other words. We're healed, see? In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis talked about the death of Aslan. And he said, mirroring the death of Jesus, he said, if ever a willing substitute dies in the place of the guilty that the stone table, the law of God would be torn in two, and then he makes this statement, and what would happen is that out of that reality is death would begin to work backwards. And in Jesus Christ, all that is broken in the world, including us, is being healed. Death is indeed beginning, has begun to work backwards because of the resurrection. All that is sad in the world, including the sadness in our lives, is coming untrue. And so if you're here this morning and your marriage is on life support, if you're overwhelmed by your own brokenness, okay, if your heart is overwhelmed with sadness, I, I want to say to you, Jesus can heal you. That's the promise of today. That the old order of things is passing away and something new is coming. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you repent of your sins and your righteousness, then he will make you a part of the new creation that he is bringing. And so let me show you how Hebrews 13 says this happens. One more time, let's go back there again. Hebrews 13 says that there is a new power at work in your life if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, motivating you towards obedience and good works. Now look at verse 21 again. God there equips, may God equip us, may equip you with every good. That word good means strong or healthy. In other words, may he bring you back to health. Now keep following along that we may do his will. And that's a directional preposition. In other words, the purpose or the consequence of God's healing us is so that we might begin to do his will. So go back and remember that quote from the movie Hugo. What makes something broken is that it can't do what it was meant to do. So the purpose of a clock is to tell time. And if a clock can't tell time, then it's broken. The purpose of a train is to take people places. And so if it can't run, then it's broken. 
And if something is broken, it means it can't do what it's meant to do. It's lost its purpose. So what does this verse tell you and I we were meant to do that we can no longer do? And the answer is that we were made and designed to listen to God's words and obey him. And so what God is doing in saving us is restoring to us the ability and the desire to listen to God's voice and to live obediently to him. Now, all that's fine, but you may be here and you might be saying, okay, I understand what you're saying, but let me just tell you, it's not working for me. I I come to church, I'm trying to live an obedient life, and things are still terrible. I mean, I... Amen to everything you're saying. And gosh, I really want God to come and do that in my life. But for whatever reason, I still have not figured out how to connect myself to that. And my life is still not going the way, you know, that, that you're talking about that it could go. Well, let me, let me just offer you two places in conclusion. Two places or two points of possible repentance for you. Because again, it's through repentance and faith that we come into the work of Jesus. Okay? So let me offer two points of possible repentance. The first is that we need to repent of our religious self-expression. As we think about what it means for us to be, be being made into people who do God's will, okay, we need to first think about ways that we can repent of our religious self-expression. On Friday night at our Good Friday service, Jonathan referenced the Newsweek cover story showing a hipster Jesus, which is just really funny. And, uh, and the title of the article in the magazine is, Forget the Church, Follow Jesus. And the kind of the prevailing metaphor in the article is, uh, is Thomas Jefferson's cut and paste job on the Bible. You know, Thomas Jefferson took the parts of the Bible that he liked and he kind of put them on in his own little Bible. And then the parts he didn't like, he just kind of said, no, oh, that's not important. He kind of left it over there. And he had his own Bible of his own making that he got to read any time he wanted to. It was great. And a lot of times, this is the way we approach Christianity. We take the parts of it we like and we make those things a part of our personal spirituality. And then... We ignore the other parts that are uncomfortable or that we disagree with. And, and this is what I mean by religious self-expression. It's kind of the tendency. We, we, in other words, it's very in vogue to not be religious but to be spiritual in our culture. Right? Religion's a bad thing. Spirituality's a good thing. And typically what we mean and how we differentiate is religion is kind of man-made. It's some structure. Spirituality is just kind of my own personal brand of whatever it is I'm trying to go after. And you see, when we do this, do you see what we're doing? The reason it's so appealing is because it gives us the option of we can call the shots. I mean, you're standing up here and you're saying, you know, about God or about the Bible or whatever. I like that, but I don't like that. You know, I, I, let's keep that. Oh, let's throw that out. I, I like that, but not that. And that doesn't work. So you can't be healed. And you, if you want to be healed, you can't stand above God and say, I like that, but I don't like that. What you need is you need God to stand over you and say, I like that. I don't like that. And then respond. And so to be equipped, to be restored, to be healed with every good thing to do as will means you have a new... What it means is, is there's something that's happened in your heart that now you have a new capacity and ability to do and to be what you were built to be. So like a fish. A fish needs oxygen, but it gets the oxygen not from the air, but from the water. Right? It has fins which propel it through the water, but are absolutely useless on land. So what happens if you plop a fish down on land? Does he kind of just scoot off? I mean, what does he do? I mean... He's a fish out of water, right? What do we mean by that phrase? Take the fish out of the water and it doesn't work right. It can't breathe. It can't move around because it was created for the water, not the land. And that's why religious self-expression doesn't work because the underlying issue is authority. And, and, and I'm afraid the, the, the article in Newsweek means the church is bad because the church will try to tell you how to live instead of leaving it up to you. 
So religious self-expression puts the ultimate authority in your hands. You get to decide what's good and what isn't, what's right and what's wrong, but, but that's the problem to begin with. God's commands aren't up for debate. They are the owner's manual. And you understand the metaphor of that, don't you? When you buy a car, you get the owner's manual, and the owner's manual tells you what you have to do to keep the car working. So, for example, change the oil. And you might say, you know what? I disagree with the owner's manual. I don't think the oil needs to be changed. In fact, I don't have the money to change the oil, so we're just going to kind of skip over that. And what happens after about 8,000 miles? You know? All the wives are snickering at their husbands. This must be a problem in marriages. Right? You have to change the oil. And so you see, it's our inability to keep his commands that have caused all the trouble. So what it means for God to heal us and to set us free is to restore to us the capacity and the ability to do God's will. But that doesn't look like religious self-expression. So first possible point of repentance. And then secondly, the second part and possible point of repentance is this. I'm preaching... I hope the gospel of grace to you this morning and saying that the consequence of believing the gospel is a life of obedience. I'm not saying be good, follow the rules, keep the Ten Commandments because that's what a good Christian does. See, that's religion. Religion says obey God and he will love and bless you. But Christianity is not religion. Christianity is the anti-religion. And the message of Christianity is God loves you and accepts you apart from anything you've done, good or bad, for Jesus' sake. And so in religion, you obey God to get him to love you and accept you. But in Christianity, you obey God only when you know he already loves and accepts you in Jesus. Christians don't do God's will in order to be saved. They do God's will because they've been saved. And so you see in these two verses here, we are called to work, to do his will, verse 21. And that word do means to be productive or fruitful, to get things done. But notice how Hebrews puts it. He says, our working is to do, our working to do God's will comes from or comes out of his working in us. It's the same Greek word there. So our work is always the echo of God's work in us. We work out what God is working in. We do for God in response to his doing for us and never the reverse. And so if you would say this morning, you know, I've tried hard and it hasn't worked. Nothing's changed and you're ready to quit and give up. Do you see what that means? It means you're not hoping in Jesus. You're not trusting in him to save you. You're still hoping in you. You're hoping in your good record, your good behavior, and you're still trying to save yourself. See, all the other religions of the world say, Work for God, follow the rules, sacrifice, deny yourself. Prove your devotion. Do all this to get God's attention and he will bless you. That's religion. Christianity says the work that matters is God's work. He is sacrificed. He's given everything. He's come all the way from heaven and all the way back up out of the grave. And he did it all to get your attention and to attract you to himself. Do you know that? See, has that shift happened in your life yet? If not, then repent and believe. Because you see, the way into the kingdom, the way into the new thing, the happily ever after that Jesus has provided for us is always through repentance and faith. And so this morning, the call is just this, to again and anew and afresh today, to repent and believe the truth of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. He has come all the way from heaven to die for you. He has gone into the grave and come back out that he might make you new. Look to him and let's pray.
I thank you for my friends, Father, who are here this morning and for their willingness to come and celebrate with us. I thank you for this good news of the gospel of Jesus that is ours through faith and repentance. And I do pray that you would help us to repent of all the ways we have been stubborn in our rebellion against you, where we have neglected, where we have violated your design intentionally, and then, and then been mad because things have not worked out well for us. Forgive us for that foolish, foolish heart attitude. But Father, forgive us, many of us who, who, in response to that, what we've tried to do is to become a good person and try through moral reformation to turn our lives around in our own efforts And how foolish of us to think that the problem was so shallow that it just meant we needed to change our behavior. We are in desperate need of someone to come and help us. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the promise that you indeed have come. That you are the rescuer. That you are the hero. You are the one who can come and take us into your hands and put us back together so that we might work right again. We've lost our purpose. And you've offered to help us to find it again in you. So come and speak to our hearts even now as we sing. Grant us the graces of faith and repentance and abundance this morning that we might put our whole heart's trust and hope in you and that the result might be joy and celebration that lasts far beyond a day but an entire lifetime. That you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today really is a glorious day for so many reasons. And I do pray you have a great day celebrating with your families. Uh, Is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead the thing that is at the center of your life that becomes the barometer for all of your experience? Is it, is the resurrection something that you've connected with and experienced subjectively? If not, then I just urge you to put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Because if not, you're not a Christian yet. But if so, right, come and talk to us. Come and talk to us if that's true. But, but, but if you say, yes, absolutely, the resurrection is, is the thing that's at the center of my life that informs everything else about my life. And it's also, I, I have a sense of that I have had this experience of, of being reborn from the inside out and God is remaking me into something beautiful, though slowly. If that's true, then just like at the end of Hebrews, after all of his theological postulizing comes the benediction. So at the end of a service where we celebrate the, the historical objective reality of his resurrection, I can offer a benediction to you. So if your faith and hope are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then truly these words belong to you. And so receive them in faith and then let them be the power that fuels you to go and live a life of obedient submission to his will as you live on mission in the city God's called you to this week. Receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.